As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, now we come to this Bible that you've given to us. And you have said, thus we believe, that it is your word to us, that it is breathed out by your spirit through uh, these uh, authors. And so we pray that as we hear it, we would hear it not as the words of men, but as the very word of God. So we pray that we would treat it that way. We would revere and respect all that we hear from it. And then help us to think well about it in a way that is right and good, in a way that glorifies you and is, an, is, is a blessing to us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to James in chapter 1, New Testament letter, James chapter 1. I just want to read verses 1 through 8. James chapter 1, please. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to, if God will help me, take up simply verse 5 today. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We'll tie that in a moment, I think, to the previous verses, and then next Sunday we'll have to go on to tie it together with uh, verses 6 through 8, what follows, because obviously they they complement and complete uh, this particular promise. But this is, this verse 5, that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously and out, without reproach, and he will give it. That, that, that sentence should be for you one of those promises of God that you have fixed deeply within you. If you haven't needed it, I don't know how you've lived. And secondly, uh, you will need it in the future. This is one of those precious promises that we have. We all want Wisdom, that is, we all want to live life, could we put it like this, successfully. In fact, that's one of the definitions of wisdom, one of the sort of generic definitions of wisdom, that wisdom is the art of living successfully. Now, obviously, the two operative words there are living, we live it out, successfully. What does it really mean to live life successfully? See, the wise person knows what successful living is. Now, it isn't simply being smart or being knowledgeable. We all know brilliant people who have failed to live wisely. We know brilliant politicians, for instance, who in the height 
of their influence have fallen, and we would say they failed to live wisely. Uh, Their uh, uh, unconstrained ambition got the best of them, and they fell from their sphere of influence. I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking who you're thinking. Uh, So there you go. Uh, We we know um, people in business in the same way. Brilliant. Able to make tremendous profits. But, but then we look at their lives and we think, but, 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 but they lived unwisely because now we see at the end of their life they've lost their family, they're alone, and even if they're still wealthy, they're miserable because they've lost all that seems to be really precious. Students, brilliant, yet if living unwisely will find themselves out of school, but perhaps uh, eight years too long in school, right? We, we see that, and we can look at their lives. We go, that was unwise. Uh, couples, spouses in marriage, we can, we can see that when they entered marriage, they seemed capable enough, but then we look at their lives and we see they lived unwisely. They were selfish or unfaithful, and now look at the sorrow that has been produced. And so, so wisdom isn't necessarily being smart. Being smart doesn't hurt. Or having knowledge doesn't hurt. But, but, but just being smart and having knowledge isn't this sense of wisdom. You may still not be able to live a successful life or understand what success is. Because you see, there's this predominant moral component to wisdom. There's a predominant moral component to wisdom. Uh, J.I. Packer, and I'll quote him uh, at, uh, at some uh, leisure and, uh, and uh, being uh, uh, quantity this morning because I've learned everything I know about wisdom from his writings as he understands the scripture. But he puts it like this. He says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Let me say that again. He writes, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. You see, what makes this a moral issue is that word best. What is really best? What is really good? Wisdom is knowing what is really good, what is really best. And pursuing it, you see. He puts it like this. He says, wisdom is in fact the practical side of moral goodness. You see, wisdom is the blueprint for moral goodness. We find out what goodness is. Wisdom then is, is living that life. It, it, it's the blueprint for it. It's the manual for it. This is wise, successful, if you will, uh, uh, living. We, we know this, that, that wisdom has this a moral component. I read uh, this morning earlier from Proverbs and chapter 2. And uh, uh, Solomon tells us this, that we're to seek wisdom and all of that. And he says, when you uh, receive this wisdom, that then, verse 9 of Proverbs 2, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. You see, wisdom is to lead to every good path. Does this make you smarter than everybody? I'm more knowledgeable. But it's the lead somewhere. It's the lead to a life. It's a pathway to a life 
that leads to, to every good path. Verse 20, so you will walk in the way of the good and keep the path of the righteous. For the upright will inherit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. You see, that's the wise person is not the wicked person, but the wise person who pursues uh, every good path and knows the way of good. In fact, James, if you can flip quickly to James over to chapter 3 and verse 13, lays out what wisdom really is. Now, we'll get to this in more detail in a few months or so. But uh, James chapter 3, verse 13 He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You see, the wise person is the meek person. And the meek person is the person who's gone to God, humbled himself, herself, and gone to God and said, God, teach me. For simply, I don't know. Help me. Because I really can't. That's the sense of humility before God. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. The person who goes to God and says, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to to give you. So that you would receive me. I'm poor in spirit. I'm, I'm completely bankrupt. Spiritually, morally. And then that person who mourns over that and says, I I get it. I I know the consequences of this poverty in spirit. And he says, when you know that, I'll give you the kingdom of heaven. I'll give it to you. You can't turn it. I'll give it to you when you realize you can't. And that you've sinned. And when you mourn, I'll forgive you. And that will be your comfort. And then he said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the ones who know who they are in the presence of God. And then face everyone else with that knowledge. Face everyone else by saying, listen, I just talked to God. And I know that the best I can do on my own is to merit condemnation. So how can I really be arrogant? How can I really really put on airs, if you will, around you? Because now you know that about me. And I know you know that about me. And so... That's the meek person who then comes and says, how can I serve you? How can I help you? And that's the good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. And notice James goes on. He contrasts two kinds of wisdom, or we could say two sources of wisdom. That which is from the earth or from below, and that is which is from above or from God. Notice verse 14. He says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's the sense of it. And he says, he says, no, worldly wisdom, earthly wisdom is, is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. In other words, When you think successful living is the result of desiring what others have and doing all that you can to get it. When you think that successful living is all about your comfort and all about your possessions and all about your privilege and all about your position and all about your health and all about your... If you think it's all about you, you see, then you'll end up 
bitter. Because you'll never have enough. And the jealousies that you have will overtake you eventually. You'll see what you don't have and what everybody else seems to have. And after a while, then that will be a fixation on your mind. And you'll say, I've failed. I haven't got what they've got. Or you'll live your life to try to get it. And then your whole life will be a a, a life of trivial pursuit. You'll just go after things that are unnecessary. Really? Bottom line to have for real successful living. You've missed, if you will, the point of it. But then he goes on. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom of verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown by peace, by those who make peace. He says, says the real wisdom of God is when you give yourself in such a way that you serve others in such a way that you live at peace with them. It isn't about your comfort. It may be about theirs. is isn't about what you have, but perhaps what about they have. See, that's your interest, you see. When, when Paul writes about this humility as it concerns us from the humility of our Lord Jesus, he puts it like this in Philippians in, in chapter 2. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, is that really successful living? Is that really, that's the wisdom of God. Don't be self-centered. Don't be jealous. Don't be after your own ambition. But think of others. Put their needs even ahead of yours. You'll be successful in friendships. The things that matter. You'll be successful in marriage, the things that matter. And why shouldn't we? He said, well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was that wise? Did that lead to success in any way? Was that the good life? Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Work for him. Right? This was the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom and the power of God. That living, we're to emulate it as people have been redeemed by Jesus, you see. We're to live wisely. What does that mean? It means that we're to live holy, really, and godly lives. Now, if you think about the context of of James' writing, for instance, remember, he's writing to a group of refugees. James... As we said last Sunday, most likely this half-brother of Jesus, who was the, the, the principal elder, if you will, seemingly in and, and pastor in Jerusalem. 
And after the stoning of Stephen, after Saul of Tarsus came and ordered the death of, of, of this Christian whose name was Stephen, and he was stoned, that after that, this Saul of Tarsus went house to house, imprisoning believers in Jesus, and thus they scattered. And when they scattered, they went everywhere, and they were refugees. They left their homes and everything to go. So he's writing to this group of people. And you remember last Sunday, we said that the trial that they were experiencing as, as refugees, as homeless, as friendless, as jobless, right? And, and, and as they were going perhaps even to places that didn't want to take them into hostile territory, if you will, here they find themselves as these refugees. And how were they to understand that in terms of, of, of what God was doing and, 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 and belonging to God as they did through Jesus? And he said, don't count this as tragic. Don't consider this as discouraging. Don't see this as the end of your life. Rather, consider this joy. A little counterintuitive. Consider this joy, he said. Why? Because God had ordained this. There's a purpose in this under God that he'll bring about, which is their Christian maturity. He says, count this as joy. These various trials that you experience. Why? Because there's a testing of you, of your faith here. Not to test whether you have it or not necessarily, but to test it in the sense of purifying it. So that what's left at the end of the day is real, genuine, deep, strengthened, mature faith and life. And he says, then you'll be perfect. Not sinlessly perfect, at least not in this life. But you'll be complete in Jesus. You've grown up to the full stature of what a Christian should be, you see. And you'll lack nothing. But then the very next words out of his mouth is, well, if you do lack anything, like wisdom. Now, that's a rhetorical way of not saying some of you have wisdom and some of you don't. But rather, it's a nice pastoral way of saying, oh, by the way, in the midst of this, you're going to need wisdom. Right? Because you're undergoing a trial. And I've just told you to count it as joy. So you're going to have to know something. And you're going to have to live in a particular way through this. And so if you, if you lack wisdom, he says, here's how you get it. You simply ask of God. He acts in faith, of course. We'll talk about that next week. It's presupposed, really. When you ask of God. Perhaps you get the sense that James is quoting as he ought his older brother. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And of course, the generosity of God is expressed in that passage because Jesus says to them, um, how many of you, if your son asked you for a fish, would give him a stone? You go, well, I wouldn't do that. Jesus says, well, if you who are evil (laughs) know how to give good gifts to your children, will not your heavenly father give good gifts? And then in another place, he says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so you see, James is expressing the same great generosity that Jesus expressed about God when we ask and we seek 
We knock and we know that's perpetual. We know we keep on asking, keep on seeking, and we keep on, keep on knocking. The question then is, what are we really asking for then when we're asking God for wisdom? Now, if you're like me, what I really want God to tell me is all the details. I want him to tell me why this is happening to me. I want him to tell me how long it's going to last. And I want him to tell me the good outcome that's going to come and when. Right? I, I want the details of this. That isn't the wisdom that God gives to us. If I might allow Packard to help me in this explanation. This book, Knowing God, is one that was written in 1973. Um, that's the year we were married. Huh. There you go. Betty wrote it as a present. Um, but... Um, the um, um, we were like six when we got married. That's what I thought. There you go. Um, still be old, but, uh, uh, but but he writes about this wisdom and being British. He writes about it in the context of going into a uh, the uh, the uh, uh, platform on York Station, which is kind of like a Grand Central Station uh, in England. They're a big train station. And if you don't mind me reading just a bit, just listen. You'll get this. This is easy. He says, if you stand at the end of a platform on York Station, you can watch a constant succession of engine and train movements, which, if you're a railway enthusiast, will greatly fascinate you. But you will only be able to form a very rough and general idea of the overall plan in terms of which all these movements are being determined. I mean, you just watch it like if you were in an airport and you're watching planes come and go. You, you know a little bit, but you don't know all the, all the variations, for instance. Um, If, however, you are privileged enough to be taken by one of the high-ups into the magnificent electrical signal box that lies across from platforms 7 and 8, you will see on the longest wall a diagram of the entire track uh, layout for five miles on either side of the station. You can picture that, what it would be in a train station or a subway station. You see all of it, where all the trains are, all all these little lights with little glowworm lights moving or stationary on the different tracks to show the signalman at a glance exactly where every engine and train is. At once, you'll be able to look at the whole situation through the eyes of men who control it. You will see from the diagram why it was that this train had to be signaled to a halt and that one diverted from its normal running line and then that one parked temporarily in a siding. The why and the wherefore of all these movements becomes plain once you can see the overall position. Then he goes on. Now the mistake that is commonly made is to suppose that this is an illustration of what God does when he bestows wisdom. To suppose, in other words, that the gift of wisdom consists in a deepened insight into the providential meaning and purpose of events going on around us, an ability to see why God has done what he has done in a particular case and what he's going to do next. People feel that if they were really walking close to God so that he would impart wisdom to them freely, then they would, so to speak, find themselves in the signal box and they would discern the real purpose of everything that happened to them. Isn't that what we really want? God, who am I supposed to marry? That one. Right? How is it going to work out? Great. Right? What job should I take? That one. How is it going to work out? Great. What should I major in? 
All these things, we want to know exactly what's going to happen. What's the stock market really going to do in this particular era? What, what is this? What is that? I have this illness. How's this going to work out exactly? Could you, could you show me along the track exactly how this is going to go? Because that'll really help me. I'll know how long it's going to last or if it's going to get worse. And I'll be able to plan and prepare for that. It'll just really go better if I know all these details. And somehow, don't we? Somehow we think that if we're really walking with the Lord, if we're really spiritual, that we'll know all that. That he'll tell it. That we should know that because we're Christians. And if we don't know that, surely my pastor will know that or my elders will know that or this great godly Christian woman that I know or this great godly Christian man will know. So I'll go and I'll ask them and they'll just lay this all out because that's what it means to be wise in the Lord. But it isn't. We're not God. We don't get to go into the signal box. We don't get to see all of that. I suspect if we could, it would scare us. Until, of course, you get to the end. But we already know that. The end of this trial is Christian maturity. The end of everything is the new heavens and the new earth for the people of God. The question is, will we act in faith? Will we live wisely in the midst of it? Packer gives another illustration, short one. He says... We ask again, what does it mean for God to give us wisdom? What kind of gift is it? And he goes on, if another transport illustration may be permitted, it's like being taught to drive. Now I know that's trauma for many of you, especially those of us who have children we've taught to drive. Um, So relax. He said, what matters in driving is the speed and appropriateness of your reaction to things and the soundness of your judgment as to what scope a situation gives you. You don't ask yourself, why the road should narrow or screw itself into a dogleg wiggle just where it does, nor why that van should be parked where it is, nor why that person in front of you should hug the crown of the road so lovingly. You simply see it and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. The effect of divine wisdom is to enable you and me to do just that in the actual situations of everyday life. You see... This wisdom that God gives is to enable us to live in such a way that pursues that which is best. Now the question is, what is best? In the midst of every situation. Well, uh, the preacher, Ecclesiastes, gives us a quick summary, as does our own Westminster Confession of Faith shorter catechism but in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13 after a whole summary I haven't time to go through the whole book of Ecclesiastes with you but after a whole summary of of life he says like this the end of the matter all has been heard fear God and keep his commandments trust him fear him revere him be captivated by him Realize the source of all good and all wisdom is in him. And go to him, you see. Fear God. And what is wise then? What is wise living? Obey his commandments. In every situation. You may not know how it's going to turn out. You may not know if you're going to get better. You may not know if your children will ever behave themselves. You may not know uh, if, if, if this or that will take place. But what you do know 
that you'd have no other gods, that you'd worship the true God truly, that you'd revere his name and desire that it be hallowed, that you would stop one day in seven and think about him with his people, that you'd honor your parents, that you'd be faithful in your marriage, that you're not to lie or to cheat, to steal, to take life, but rather bless it. And you to be content in what the Lord has given you and not to covet. Can it be that simple? Well, no. Then yes. The way we say it in our own tradition is that the chief purpose of every human being is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're to fear him and obey him in every circumstance and situation to do that thing which which glorifies him, you see. We're not to live by our own wisdom, which is jealousy, which is wanting what what we haven't got to the degree that we'll do anything to get it. We're not to to let our selfish ambition arise in such a way that we're all after us and our own comforts and our own privilege and our own possessions and our own stuff and self. That's not godly wisdom. That will lead to all kinds of difficulty and misery. That's the wisdom of the world to want and to have. But there's something about the wisdom of God that says, no, it's to want to give. It's the want to bless. It's the want to help. It's the want to serve. You see, that's the wisdom of God. It's to live in peace and to be reasonable. It's to be pure in heart towards others. You see, when people hurt us, earthly wisdom is to demand that they know how badly they've hurt us. Earthly wisdom, you see, is is to try to make it hard on them because they've hurt us. Earthly wisdom is to gossip and to slander those who've hurt us. But the wisdom of God is to love and to forgive and even love your enemies if that's who's hurt you. That is successful living. If someone's hurt you and and you forgive, there's real pain to that. There's always cost in forgiveness. Will that pain ever go away? I don't know. Will the damage that was done to you ever go away? I don't know. Success is when you forgive and when you release and when you bless. can't tell you, you see the sober truth of all of this, you can't tell you that, 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 that the trial that you're going under because you're unemployed uh, means that I can tell you or someone can tell you or God will tell you when you're going to get a job or if or how that's going to work out. But in the midst of that, don't be afraid. Trust. Don't be jealous of others who do have a job. Don't seek a job in such a way that you'll lie to get it. But to be godly in the midst of that, you see. Now, how will this wisdom come? Well, first, James says, simply ask. Uh, and, 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 and you say, well, how can I do that? I've already messed up. I've already asked 50 times. 
I, I, I've, already, I've already lied. I've already been afraid. I've already been anxious. I've already yelled at people. I, I've already uh, committed adultery. I, I've, I've, already, I've already done all these things. How, how can I ask for wisdom now? How can I ask for this help to, to, to know what living a godly life is? And to, how can I really ask now? Or you may be thinking, but, but I've been a Christian for half my life. I, I go to Bible study and I, I listen to a hundred sermons or thousands now. And I've, I've, uh, uh, why should I ask? Shouldn't I just get on with this? And James says, no, ask. Because you see, God gives generously. And you go, really? The literal translation of generous is he gives simply. <laughs> It simply means he's not constrained. He's just single-minded. He just says, ask and I'll give. That's what Jesus said. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be open. No big qualifiers there. James will talk about faith. Let's presuppose that. You're trusting. You're believing. He says, ask. God is generous he gives without reproach. What does that mean? It means he doesn't criticize you when you come. It means when you come to him for wisdom, he doesn't say, you should already know this. Or I've already told you this. Or you've already flubbed up 50 times. And so why should I give you any more wisdom about this at all? He says, no, he just simply gives generously without reproach. So he says, ask. But remember when you're asking, what you're asking is that he will enable you to live a life that will glorify him in the midst of whatever situation you find yourself. Now you can pray, as the scripture instructs us to pray about everything. You can pray that God will take it away. You can pray that God will get you the job. You can pray that God will heal you. We can pray all of those things. That's fine. But when we pray for wisdom... What we're praying for isn't that we'll know when this is going to end or how long this is going to be or why it's come. We're praying that God will enable us to live in the midst of the circumstance, to be steadfast, as James said previously, to live in such a way that we glorify him. That's the best end. The best end of every circumstance and every situation is that God is shown to be great, that God is shown to be faithful, that God is shown to be good, that God is shown to be the one who's worthy of our worship. That's the best end. That's the wisdom we're praying for. And he'll give us wisdom that says live at peace. He'll give us wisdom that says obey my commandments. To live his wisdom, to, to say, be gentle, to be kind, to be compassionate in the midst of this circumstance. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is never seek revenge. The wisdom of God is never bail on this situation. The wisdom of God is to stay steadfast and to be godly in the midst of it. That's successful living. That's Wisdom, finally. How will this come to us? When we ask, when will we know we get it? What are the means through which he'll, he'll ask? Well, you see, if we're asking in faith, we're trusting that God will give us wisdom. We have to ask, how does God speak to us then? How will he give us wisdom? And, and well, he's already spoken. And so when we ask for wisdom, the presupposition is that we'll read the Bible 
trusting that he'll give us wisdom in answer to our prayer. So we read the scripture, we go to Bible study, we listen to sermons, we, we, we listen to the Bible in our minds as God brings it to our minds. We seek counsel from Bible-soaked friends so that we can hear God answer our prayer. But what we should be looking for and what he will tell us and what we will hear is none of the details, but how it is that we're to persevere in godliness in the midst of this situation. That's the wisdom of God. And then you see, we'll be like that wise man that Jesus spoke about. Again, you get the sense that James' elder brother was very much on his mind as he wrote. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty four. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. And that will be a theme throughout this letter that we read. Everyone who hears these words and does them, that's wisdom. Not simply to hear them, but to do them. The wise man does them. Will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, which is the wisdom of God. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock that is on the wisdom of God. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and fell and great was the fall of it. You see, our stability, what will keep us is this foundation, which is the wisdom of God, which we hear and do. How do we get it? We ask. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's written that the people who heard Jesus speak these words were astonished. When I hear that what I must do to receive the wisdom of God is to ask, I'm astounded. Ask, humble myself and say, I don't know, and ask? Yes. Because you see, God gives generously without reproach. You say, how can that be? Nobody's like that. <laughs> yes, there is one. And he is God. Let's pray. Father, For me, for us, I ask for wisdom to live. The primary wisdom, of course, that you give to us is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the very wisdom and power of God. It's your wisdom to say, none of us can save ourselves, but you can save us. That through the cross... Your justice can be served and your love be expressed. So that as Jesus takes the guilt of our sin and pays sin's penalty, 
you can be just by dealing with sin. And then also the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. That our sins forgiven in him. Your wisdom is that we would first trust, believe in him, in Jesus and all that he's done. So even now, God, I pray if any one of us here has never believed in Jesus as Savior and the one who is the Lord over life and death, I pray that you would grant that wisdom now by your Spirit. And Father, for each of us, that in the midst of difficulties, that we would know what's really important. We would know what is really important is your glory. And you are most glorified in us when we follow you with joy. When we fear you and keep your commandments. So God, I pray that at every turn we would have your wisdom. That we would know what godly living is in every situation and circumstance. And at the end of the day, that we would look back and others would even look upon our lives and all of us would marvel at you and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Father, the trials among us are common to human beings. There are those who are sick among us. There are those who are grieving among us. There are those who are in financial need among us. There are those who are lonely among us. There are those who are dealing with the consequences of their own sins. There are those who doubt among us. And yet, God, we pray that in the midst of each trial that we find ourselves in, each trial that we have met and that we will meet along the way, that you would grant to us holiness and godliness that you might be glorified and many would see and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name.